I recently read a story about a businessman, a guy named Greg, and he had planned this high school reunion. Uh, you know, he hadn't seen his friends from high school, many of them, in about 20 years. And, uh, and so they were going to get together and have this high school reunion and, and relive their glory days and find out what's going on in everyone's life. And of course, this was pre-Facebook, I guess, the story. Facebook has just kind of ruined, I guess, the, the, the glory of high school reunions these days. But as the night was winding down, Greg noticed that his friend Debbie was a little teary-eyed. She seemed kind of down, and, and that kind of grabbed his attention. He wanted to know what was going on, and she said through her tears, it's sad that there are some things you just can't forget. He sensed there was something deeper going on here, so he pressed her a little bit on what she meant, and finally she told him that in second grade... Okay, so this is, remember, this is about 20 years after high school. In second grade, a girl named Karen started the Debbie Haters Club. And to a second grader, it was devastating. She had never gotten over the pain of that. She had never been able to forgive Karen. Well, Greg knew that Karen was at the reunion that night. And so he told Debbie she should talk to her, and Debbie refused. Greg insisted. In fact, Greg ended up just kind of orchestrating this whole effort toward reconciliation. So when Karen went to get her coat to leave the party, Greg pulled her into a separate room and asked her to wait for just a moment. And a few minutes later, in came Debbie. And Greg stood outside the room to, to stand guard and, and not listen in. And he didn't need to, because after a few minutes, the door opened and both Debbie and Karen walked out and he could just see it in their faces, the freedom of forgiveness. We've all been there in one way or another. And some of us were like Debbie. You know, we were the ones who were hurt deeply by someone. We're carrying around some pain from our past, some regret, some shame and insecurities. And some of us are like Karen. We're the ones who ostracized people who weren't in the cool crowd. We're the ones who tended to make fun of others and put them down because it made ourselves feel a little bit better. We know that there are things in our past that we said and, and did that hurt others. And... Uh, we regret those things. But hopefully, whether you were a Debbie or you were a Karen, hopefully we can all become like Greg. That we can all be peacemakers. That we can all work toward helping to bring people together in reconciliation. Sometimes we can be all three. You know, Joseph certainly could relate with Debbie. But Joseph made the choice to be like Greg, to be a reconciler. So far in our story of Joseph's life, remember Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He was mistreated by his brothers, abused by them, and eventually sold into slavery. While there, he became the head slave of Potiphar's household. He ran the place and did a great job until he was accused of something he didn't do and ended up in prison. And through God's intervention and through using his gift of dream interpretation, Joseph ends up second in command of all of Egypt put in charge of the effort to see the nation through seven years of famine. Jacob's family is hit hard by that famine, so he sends his sons, Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to buy the grain. And lo and behold, one day Joseph finds ten of his brothers bowing down before him, wanting to buy grain. And so he takes this opportunity to put them through a series of tests because he wants to see if they've changed. Can they be trusted? Are they remorseful for what they've done? He wants to reconcile with them. He wants to see his brother Benjamin. He wants to be reunited with his father. 
and we left the story with Joseph's brothers having passed the test so far, they are remorseful for how they treated Joseph. And so they're invited to a banquet at Joseph's house. Of course, they don't know that this Egyptian official is their long-lost brother. And last week, we discovered that Joseph's plan for reconciliation is an example for us of how Jesus brings reconciliation between us and God. We looked at a time of testing, of conviction over sin, a time of tension where we're faced with the reality that we need a Savior, and then a time of transition, a a moment of decision where we have to choose, am I going to confess and repent, turn from my sin, and trust in Jesus, or am I going to reject Him and walk away? Think of that as sort of the view of, of salvation and reconciliation from heaven. Right, We're kind of looking down from 30,000 feet. But in today's story, as we conclude this climactic scene, we're going to see that same process of reconciliation from a different perspective. Think about it as the view from the ground, as the close-up view, as, as our perspective. And this applies not only to our reconciliation with God, but really it's a roadmap for how we can pursue reconciliation with the Debbies, or the Karens in our life. The first part of this roadmap begins with confrontation. If you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44, Joseph had one final test, like a final jeopardy for his brothers. It was an all-or-nothing kind of risk. This last hurdle had to be crossed by his brothers if they were going to be able to repent of their sin and if Joseph was going to feel the freedom to reveal to them his true identity. So as they are coming back from Egypt to buy more grain, they've got Benjamin in tow, remember? They're coming to rescue their imprisoned brother Simeon. And and there were three problems the brothers faced. We we ended with this last week, right? Uh, And and they were miraculously solved from their perspective. There was money in their bags that they didn't know was there. They were afraid they were going to be accused of stealing it. And the steward said, don't worry about it. It must have been God. We're good. That problem was solved. Simeon was immediately released. And this Egyptian high official seemed to take a liking to their brother Benjamin so they didn't fear for Benjamin's safety anymore. They were overjoyed. Things were going so well. But as I said last week, it was a temporary joy because the real problem has yet to be resolved. So this final test really took them by surprise. Look with me in verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry. Put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. So he's kind of pulling that trick again. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack. He's talking about his brother Benjamin, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. When you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. So, Joseph instigates this, uh, this situation for them to, to be in. And the brothers knew that this had to be a mistake, right? They, they, in fact, they, they repeatedly say in the next few verses how honest they are, how humble they are, that, 
that they've proven themselves time and again already, that they are seriously just here to get grain, to keep their family from starving to death. And so they begin to boast about their innocence, and they take that boast a little too far. Look at verse 9. If any of your servants is found to have this cup in their possession, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. And the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes in grief, and they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Can you imagine how, how Simeon and Judah must have felt? They had given these over-the-top vows uh, I'm sorry, Reuben. Reuben and Judah had given these over-the-top vows to their dad about how they were going to make sure that Benjamin came home. And now they've made these over-the-top vows, pleading their innocence, saying, look, whoever's it is, kill them and make the rest of us your slaves. And thankfully, Joseph is immediately merciful. He says, no, nobody's going to die. You can all go free, but the one who is guilty will become my slave. And when they find out it's Benjamin... I mean, they are just beside themselves. They made these hasty vows, and they felt like they were going to live to regret it. But notice God in his mercy at work in this situation. You know, Joseph didn't take those hasty vows at face value. He offered them a much more merciful uh, resolution to this. But... Really, what Joseph is doing is helping them to feel what, they, what he felt. You think about Joseph, right? How many times did Joseph feel like the rug was pulled out from under his feet? How often did Joseph feel like he was going from the frying pan into the fire, right? And that's what he's kind of, these hoops that he's made his brothers jump through, they feel the same thing. This, again, haven't we already answered this question? Haven't we already resolved this? You know, I'm sure you have felt like that in your life before. It would probably feel a little bit like that these days. And that's exactly where they were. They were overwhelmed with grief. This was the nightmare scenario they feared would happen. Remember, again, Judah promised to Jacob that he would die as punishment if he didn't bring Benjamin home. So you can imagine Judah was highly motivated to, to, to prepare a speech and to try to do everything he could to plead for Benjamin to get to return home. And so Judah really fulfills his responsibility when they get back to Joseph's house, he takes the lead. Now, we have to be confronted, just like they were. We have to be confronted with our own sin. But God doesn't have to contrive any tests for us. No, we readily demonstrate our sinfulness every day, don't we? And God doesn't have to search that out too deep. It is right there on the surface of our lives. But God, what he does is he sends his Holy Spirit. He sends his Holy Spirit to convict us. He speaks to us through His Word like a mirror to reveal to us the things in our life that we need to correct. In fact, Jesus talked about this in John chapter 16. Talking about the Holy Spirit, He said, when He comes, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in Me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where no one can see Me any longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit's work is to bring conviction. And without 
conviction, there can't be any confession. This is true between us and God. This is true between us and other people in our lives who have wronged us. Forgiveness and reconciliation cannot happen unless there is a confrontation. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be aggressive. That doesn't mean you have to be confrontational to to, to confront people, but we have to be honest. If somebody has wronged you, you have to be honest with them about what they've done and how you feel about that. And you can say that gently. You can do that in love. But the wrong that's been committed must be addressed. The fact that there's a broken relationship has to be acknowledged. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, though. And then if that doesn't work, he has a a process. Again, a road map for confronting those who have done something against us. Paul, his letter to Philemon, is all about confronting Philemon about his former slave, Onesimus. And Paul is writing this to say, you need to welcome him back with open arms, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. He does it lovingly, but it is a confrontation. The goal of that, done in love, done with humility and gentleness, the goal of that confrontation is always a confession. That's what you want is a confession. When Joseph confronts them about the stolen cup, he demands the culprit, Benjamin, remain behind as his slave. Again, Joseph is testing his brothers to see, are they going to treat Benjamin the way they treated him? Are they going to abandon Benjamin in Egypt and save their own skin? Now, Judah here in the rest of this chapter gives an impassioned, courageous, compassionate speech. In fact, it's the longest speech in the book of Genesis made by a single person. It's a heartfelt display of his love for his brother and his dad. And it reveals also this underlying guilt and remorse for what they had done to Joseph. So for the third time in the story, Joseph's brothers come. They bow down before him. This time, they're bowing down as frightened, broken men who are literally throwing themselves at the feet of Joseph, pleading for mercy. Remember the first time they appeared before Joseph, they expressed guilt over what they had done to their brother. And once again here, they show remorse. They're not just admitting to having the cup and silver, which wasn't their fault. They knew it wasn't their fault. They knew they weren't guilty of this. No, they're they're expressing a deeper grief because they believe that they're in this situation because of their past sin against Joseph. And you know what? They're right. That is why they're in this situation. Now, in his speech, Judah could never have known that every time he, he mentions the word brother, the word father, that he was piercing the heart of the man who literally held their futures in his hands. And not only that, but Joseph himself, think about this, Joseph himself at this point was a father. He probably was looking at his brothers and considering his father in an entirely different light. You've done that, right? I mean, as you get older and you become an adult, you have your own children, you look back at your parents, you relate to your parents in a totally different way, right? You might look at your siblings in a very different light. Well, Joseph is doing that. He's thinking, how would I feel if I lost one of my sons? How would I feel if one of my sons so brutally betrayed the other? Now, Judah certainly felt responsible for Joseph's death, but now he was feeling responsible for potentially losing Benjamin which he knew would very well kill his father with grief. So listen to the last part of this impassioned plea in verse 30. 
So now if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Judah practically begs to be Joseph's slave. What a picture of Christ's willing substitution for us. Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews describes this. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, talking about Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Surely it is not angels he helps, but Adam's descendants, I'm sorry, Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Judah was willing to take Benjamin's place, to suffer his punishment, even if it meant separation from his father. Jesus actually did die in our place. He took our punishment upon himself, and he allowed himself to experience the wrath of God the Father against sinful humankind so that we could be made right with God. Jesus is our surety. And when we confess and turn from our sins in faith towards Jesus, the Bible says that He forgives us and He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And that's the next part of the story. That's the compassion. Notice in this powerful part of this story Joseph's compassion will begin with revelation, lead to reassurance and relocation, and end with reconciliation. Again, that's exactly this roadmap to forgiveness, to reconciliation that God gives us. This is how God's compassion plays out toward us. It begins with revelation. Look in chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Wow. I am Joseph. Could you imagine? That must have gone off like a bomb being dropped for those brothers. Their hearts must have skipped a beat in terror. Their minds were racing. Their palms were sweating. The questions that must have been swirling around in their minds. This was the last thing they expected to hear. And though this is the third time that Joseph weeps over his brothers, it's the first time he lets them see him do it. And that, 
plus his request for them to draw close to him, begins to give them some encouragement. Not only did Joseph reveal himself as their long-lost brother, whom they assumed was dead at this point, but he then recounted to them the story that they thought was only a secret among the ten. Listen, even Benjamin didn't know that before now. Well, now the cat's out of the bag. Benjamin had no clue that his brothers had done that to Joseph. You know, again, this reminds me of God and His compassion who reveals Himself to us. He has revealed to us His character, His nature, His identity in the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. Part of God's revelation of Himself to us also includes this assurance that if we trust in Jesus, if we cast our sins upon Him and receive by faith that gift of salvation, we'll be saved. We'll be reconciled. And we see Joseph follows up his revelation with that same kind of reassurance. Look at verses 5 through 8. And now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. What a loving, forgiving heart that Joseph displays here. And he doesn't rub it in. He doesn't try to make them feel worse than they already do. He doesn't relish in their fear. He doesn't try to make them squirm. Rather, he reassures them. And he shares with them this amazing outlook he has on his suffering. Right? I mean, there's no doubt they were responsible for his suffering. But Joseph believed that God used what they did, which was wrong, but God used it to accomplish his divine purposes. Joseph didn't want them to dwell on their sin. Rather, he wanted them to dwell on what God was doing through them. Without even realizing it, Joseph's brothers have been a part of God's divine plan. His fulfilling of his covenant promises to Abraham. It was always a part of God's plan for Abraham's descendants to end up in Egypt. He told Abraham that for 400 years his descendants would be in Egypt and would become a mighty nation. This reveals the mystery of God's sovereignty. It reminds us that no matter what happens or even what we might do, God is ultimately in control. And what God plans to happen will happen. That should encourage us to trust His promises. No matter how dark today may be, to know that nothing catches God off guard. And nothing will keep God from fulfilling His promises to us and His purposes for us. And so those words of reassurance next led to a relocation. Look at verse 9. 
Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there. Because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt, about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. You know, by bringing his people to Egypt, God was providing them with a protected and fertile place where they really could grow into this mighty nation, more numerous than the sand on the seashore or the stars in the heavens. And in the same way, God relocates us when we believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Paul writes to to the Colossian church in chapter 1. He says, "...and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light, for He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." And that relocation from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that relocation is reconciliation. He brings us into right relationship with the Father. And look at the reconciliation that happens here in verses 14 and 15. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked freely with him. Because hidden sin has been confronted and confessed and compassionately forgiven, mercy and truth met together. This reminds me of Psalm 8510 that says, Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's forgiveness. That's reconciliation. And this is such a beautiful picture of our salvation through Christ. These brothers were forgiven and saved from famine. They were delivered into Egypt because Joseph suffered and triumphed. We are forgiven and saved from sin and death and delivered into the kingdom of God because Jesus suffered and triumphed. Joseph, humble, took the form of a slave, suffered, was imprisoned, died, if you will, and was resurrected and exalted, if you will, to the throne so that he could share his wealth and his inheritance with his people. Just as Jesus was. Paul uses very similar language in Philippians chapter 2 to describe how Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul says... That it was for this reason that God therefore exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's because of Jesus' humility and obedience and self-sacrificing love, we can be reconciled with God. Just as we see Joseph and his brothers 
talking freely. And in this new relationship of love through Jesus, we have free access to the throne of God's grace. To boldly make our requests of Him. And to enjoy a love relationship with our Creator. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Born out of confession and repentance leads to a renewed relationship where communication is restored. Again, Paul talks about this in Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish. Get that last part. Free from accusation. You're forgiven completely. I hope this morning you'll consider, where do you stand with God today? Have you been confronted by your sin? Have you experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit and your need for the grace of God? Have you confessed your sins and turned from them in repentance to trust in Jesus for salvation? Have you experienced His compassionate mercies? Because guess what? God has revealed Himself to us through the Jesus of the Bible. And He has done that to give us this assurance that eternal life can be ours. He longs to relocate us from death into life to become His children. He wants you to be with Him, to know and love and worship and serve Him. He wants to have that open and free relationship where there is trust and communication. I pray that if you don't have that kind of relationship with God, that you'll call out to Him today. And that you will know the God who loved you so much that He took on human flesh and died on a cross and rose from the dead so that you could spend eternity with Him. And what about those in your life with whom you need to be reconciled, right? You're Debbie. You're Karen. Once lovingly confronted with the hurt and the sin, once the offending party truly confesses in a humble attitude that longs for reconciliation, you know what we should do? We should freely give it. We should forgive that person that has wronged us. Jesus makes it clear that if we want to experience God's forgiveness we have to be willing to forgive others. Paul often wrote that we must forgive one another with the same forgiveness which Jesus has forgiven us. No one can sin against you as grievously as you have sinned against an infinitely holy God. If He can forgive you to the point that you are free of accusation, then why can't you forgive the person that's wronged you? And once that has occurred, once that reconciliation has happened, that moment of divinely inspired compassion will always result in celebration. And that's really the rest of chapter 45, 46, and 47. I'm not going to read all that. We don't have time to go through all that, but I encourage you to read those chapters. And when you do, you're going to read about the joys of reconciliation. And Joseph and Pharaoh make these powerful promises to Joseph's family. Joseph provides amazing gifts of affection and provision for them. Joseph, in verse 22 of chapter 45, Joseph even gives his brothers new clothes. Now, you think about that for a moment. 
That's a picture of forgiveness, right? These brothers that stripped him of his robes, he now gives them new garments. I can't help but think of Jesus, who was stripped of his robes for our sins, yet he promises us glorious robes of righteousness in heaven. In the Bible, a new change of clothes always signifies a new beginning. This was a new beginning, a new relationship between him and his brothers. But the most beautiful celebration is when Jacob learns that his son Joseph is not only alive, but thriving in Egypt. I mean, how much good news can one old man handle in a day, right? I mean, Joseph is alive. He's the ruler of Egypt. He wants the whole family to move there so he can care for us all. I mean, it just seemed that it couldn't stop getting better. Jacob almost had a heart attack at this news. And then that moment that they are reunited. Let's look at chapter 46. Just a couple of verses here. Uh, Chapter 46, verse 28. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. I love that little detail. Isn't that a great detail? Judah, go get some directions. Find out how we're supposed to get there. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I've seen for myself that you're still alive. But you know, rather than die, this reunion actually revived Jacob. He lived for 17 more years and was able to get reacquainted with his son, to get to know his new grandsons, It's a beautiful picture. But this celebration pales in comparison to the celebration that happens in heaven whenever one lost soul comes to faith in Christ. Jesus said that every time that happens, the angels throw a party. And heaven is often compared to a wedding and a feast. It's a celebration for all of eternity. And I hope and I pray that you'll be there at that banquet table. And I hope and I pray that this week you can be reconciled with someone in your life. Maybe they're the person you need to go and confess to and ask for forgiveness. Maybe there's somebody that you need to go to and say, you know, you may not know what you said or did to hurt me, but I want you to know that I forgive you and I want us to have a good relationship. I'm praying for you this week that you'll make one of those choices. And, and, and I hope you'll let me know. Please let me know how I can specifically pray for you in a relationship in your life that you need to be reconciled with. And if you are making a decision for Christ today, I hope you'll let me know. You can put a comment here on Facebook or YouTube. You can email me, call me at the church. I would love nothing more than to hear from you that you now stand reconciled with God and you're celebrating I want to celebrate with you I want to celebrate to know that you have gone to somebody there's been a bitterness a division between you and a friend a family a co-worker and that you've made it right this week and if you need any counseling you need any any anybody just to talk with you through these things again we're here and available for you now the rest of this story is a story that has uh, some happy moments and sad moments. We're going to wrap up this whole account next week. But one thing from this I want to close with is that, you know, Jacob and Joseph and his brothers lost a lot of time. 
there were a lot of wasted years. And I'm sure they would love to go back and reclaim those. Don't delay. Don't waste another moment for the opportunity to come to faith in Christ and to live as His follower. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. And don't waste another moment with bitterness and shame and regret. Go and make it right this week. Let's pray together. Father, You are the God of all mercy and grace. And Your display of grace and mercy to us through the cross of Christ, sometimes it's beyond our comprehension. But it signifies that no matter how sinful we are and holy You are, Your love for us does not change. And You went to such great mind-boggling lengths to be reconciled with us. Why can we not go to very realistic human lengths to be reconciled to one another? Lord, if there's someone out here today that needs to ask for forgiveness or extend forgiveness, I pray you'd give them the compassion and the courage they need to do that. Help us all to follow this roadmap that you've laid out for us to reconciliation with others. But most importantly, if there's anyone listening right now that doesn't stand reconciled with you, they know they're not right with you. They know they've not turned from their sin and fully trusted Jesus Christ to give them new life. I pray they would do it right now. It's in His name we pray. Amen.